This is the Monday, November 19th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine hauls out the old speed graphic camera. We're talking one of those big contraptions from a century ago. Not that tiny lens in our cell phones. Not a digital model or even a 35mm that devours rolls of film. Once we've inserted a plate into the back of this dinosaur model... We'll watch the ultimate watcher of watchers in New York City, Arthur Fellig. Meeting up with us to help haul the tripod around to various crime scenes, fires, and other calamities in the city is Christopher Bonanos. He brings us Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous. Even if you don't know the name, you've seen his gritty images from the 1930s through 50s. It's an impressive body of work, produced by a photographer who hammed up claims of an uncanny ability to show up at a crime scene just before the cops did. That's how he claimed to have gotten the nickname Ouija. Though he spelled it W-E-E-G-E-E, the legend was that he functioned as a human Ouija board. Of course, as with so much of history, the legend isn't necessarily the truth. Christopher Bonanos is city editor at New York Magazine, where he covers arts, culture, and urban affairs. His previous book is Instant, the story of Polaroid. You can find him on Twitter at HeyBonanos and at PolaroidLand on Instagram. Okay, I think we hear the sound of police sirens in the distance. So let's jump in the Chevy, join Christopher Bonanos, and smile wide for Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous. I'm joined on the line by Christopher Bonanos, author of Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Great to be here. Thank you. I really enjoyed this book. I enjoyed the idea of a pioneer with film, somebody who's going back to the very early days of a technology and applying his skills, a fascinating guy. We know so many of his pictures by sight, even if we don't know his name, and in many we can't know the name. You begin, Flash, by introducing us to the young Arthur Felig. He's living hand-to-mouth in Ukraine. He's steadily being chronicled, this evolution into Ouija the Famous, this character he creates for himself, almost as a shell he can step into from this shy young man. What about his career first caught your interest, and how did you go about drawing in your readers the same way? Well, I had always sort of known about him 
as a character. You know, I work as an editor at New York Magazine, and I do a certain number of historical stories and things about the history and fabric of New York City. So you can't do that without knowing about Ouija. More particularly, in 2012, there was a big museum retrospective of his work at the International Center of Photography. And I came out of that show thinking he was a fantastic character that I wanted to learn more about. And I had just published my previous book, and I was thinking about the next project, and I discovered that no one had written a biography of Ouija. Yeah, amazing. Oh, here we are. It's amazing that that was such an empty space that you get to run in and fill, but also a writer's dream and a researcher, even though this was clearly a big mountain for you to climb, which we'll talk about. When I read a biography like this, I try to learn from that person's journey to success. I didn't have the challenges growing up. I didn't grow up in the Ukraine with my father, who we learned through the course of Flash wasn't really the best put together character, it sounds like. And so he has a lot of trouble, doesn't have a very close family life either. You open the book and you expect to get that great immigrant story of we slept three to a bed and we were a team and a, a close family. He doesn't have that. But you learn, therefore, from how he ends up out on the street with just his suitcase, not much else. He starts at the very bottom, which is something we don't always have the patience to do in the modern world. I think it's one of the stereotypical knocks against people who are in their 20s today where you don't want to start at the bottom. For instance, for me, when I started in veterinary medicine, my dad said, well, you're going to start cleaning the cages. You'll work your way up. Describe a day in the life of that hungry, young, squeegee boy as he first breaks into news photography in what are the pre-depression years. When exactly does he start? Well, he broke in in stages. In the teens sometime, when he also was a teenager, he did a little time working as a street photographer with a little tintype kit. He would take pictures of kids on the street. He would pose them on the back of a pony, take their pictures, and then try to sell those pictures to the parents. And he was not very successful at it, not because he wasn't capable of doing it, but because he actually turned this into a story. The pony ate him out of house and home. <laughs> and after he had a particular stretch of bad weather when he couldn't go out on the streets, the pony was repossessed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so, idea. <laughs> that, that didn't work out for him. And then he worked a number of odd jobs, you know, selling candy and working as a busboy and stuff like that. But he ultimately sort of washed up in a photo studio taking passport pictures. You know, that's the least glamorous photography job you can imagine. And then he got a job in the dark rooms of the New York Times. And then another job in the dark rooms of a wire service called Acme News Pictures. It still exists after a fashion. It's been rolled up. It, it became UPI, essentially, and now has been rolled up into Getty Images. And there he worked in a darkroom for a solid, like, 15 years, 10 or 15 years, printing other people's pictures and sort of nursing these dreams of being the one who was out there making them and getting famous himself. That's kind of where he gets that nickname. At least that's what I get from reading Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous. I love that word in the title, the making of, because it is something that he develops over time. And then he's one of those people that if you're a hard history person, you say, gosh, just tell me one version of your origin story. And he doesn't do that. And you do that work for us here in the book, fortunately. That's exactly right. <laughs> that goes back to that being a squeegee boy. Yeah. I just love to learn from people, from their journey. And that's something there that goes back to what I said. If you're a young person, you read the book Flash, you say, look at that. He starts the lowest of the low where they would just 
treat you like a disposable person. Anyone could do this. You're running around with the horrible, noxious chemicals. You could just smell it. I have developed x-rays in the old days before we had machines. You would do that if you x-rayed a patient, a dog or cat in my case, and then you'd, you have to do this all. Oh, it's time consuming. It's boring. You're in a dark room. You can't let anyone walk in. And so you're a squeegee boy and they call you that because he was just one of many. He was indistinguishable is how I read it in the book. But eventually he starts to draw their respect, works his way up. He refuses to be kept on that bottom rung. So how is that the origin of what becomes that nickname later? And it's not that sexy story about him being a human Ouija board either. That's mostly work that he does that makes him seem like he can be there before the crime happens. That's right. His early work, as you say, he was a squeegee boy, which meant he dried off the freshly developed prints. That was in the dark rooms of the Times. And then when he went to Acme, he got promoted and he was making the prints himself. They discovered in that dark room that he had been a squeegee boy recently and they started making fun of him. And he turned that nickname into a point of pride. He became Mr. Squeegee and eventually Ouija. The other thing is that he went from being a total novice to being a really good, fast printer. The wire services, because they were in the breaking news business, was really valued a guy who could crank out the work. Yeah. A darkroom manager said he could, his darkroom, the team under his direction, could produce a thousand prints a day, which was a huge amount of work. And the fact that he could do that well under pressure in a breaking news situation made him really valuable. But of course, it's, it also trapped him. He was not out there taking pictures because he was in the darkroom. And he really yearned for that. He would take on little freelance assignments, little extra assignments. You know, it's still like this in newsrooms. The junior people, the editorial assistants and the beginning fact checkers and people like that all get the small writing assignments. And the junior photo editors sometimes run out and take a quick picture when it's needed. That's exactly what he did. I think he let that be his training ground, both because he was doing these little jobs and he was looking at the bigger jobs and sizing up what made a good picture that sold. And those two things together turned him into a news photographer. And in 1935, around 1935, he said, you know what, I'm going to make a go of it. And he quit this steady job, which had a steady salary, was paying him pretty well. And he said, I'm going it alone as a freelance. I'm going to make it. And it is an audacious thing to do. You know, he was 36 years old. Mm. To chuck your life, give up the straight job in order to pursue the dream is not uh, something one takes lightly, especially in the middle of the Depression. And nobody wants you to take their job in any of these kinds of businesses. And the fact he gets that respect and they call him Mr. Squeegee after just using it as a diminutive or an insult, a slight, and that develops into this nickname, this personality, it's a testament to how hard he works that he's able to get somebody to give him a break because often you work in places, a big organization, a newsroom, they don't mind keeping you down there as a production assistant. I mean, I remember being an intake, my skill was not like Ouija's skill, but I happen to be a really fast typist. And when you're watching a bunch of news feeds and you're seeing them all come in and you want to type up a speech or something at the moment, that's what they want to have in there. They don't want somebody who is hunting and pecking. And so it's easy to get trapped in a job like that where they want you doing the job that you're doing and they don't want to hear about your dreams. And then you have other photographers that don't necessarily want this new kid on the block to come in and start snapping pictures and things. And that's something with him that he does. He is a big self-promoter and that personality doesn't always make you popular with people who you're seen as trying to usurp. And that's the thing with this competitive photography business where you're not on salary. He's going out there. Everybody's going out fighting for the same pictures. In fact, there's a point in Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous, 
where somebody stoops to sabotaging his precious speed graphic camera. I wondered if you or I met Ouija the Famous, what kind of reception might we have expected after that point when he's even more closed off than just a shy man? What would we expect if we met him? And also as opposed to maybe if a young woman met him, because he clearly has an eye for the ladies. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of people who either met him or knew him a little better than that. And a lot of them had similar stories, which is that especially at the first impression, he came off very coarse and self-promotional. That is, he just talked about himself. He was not a cultured, although he was well-read and knowledgeable about culture, he did not come off as a cultured man at first. You know, he was a slob, first of all, and his suits were all covered with cigar ashes. He smoked 20 cigars a day. And he was a, uh, I hate to put it in such bald terms, but he was a lich. Um, He seems to have hit on every woman he ever met. (laughs) So, you know, he came off as a sort of crude character, and he could sort of come off as an unpleasant one. At the same time, people who spent a little time around him discovered that they liked him in spite of this. That is, they feel warmly toward him, and they said he was actually also a rather sensitive soul. You know, he had the soul of an artist. He wanted to make pictures of people that really got to their their inner selves. And this weird mix turned out to serve him well in the news photography game because you wanted to make the great picture of somebody whose house had burned down or um, somebody who had just lived through a harrowing experience. At the same time, you had to have elbows sharp enough and hustle enough to be there first because if you were a freelance, you were shooting to sell and shooting to eat. So you had to get that picture and get it back to the newsroom before the next guy. And in particular, because he was freelance, he was competing with the staff news photographers. That is, many of the papers in New York had people on staff who would work all night, same as him. He was shooting for often the smaller papers that didn't have night guys, or he was just looking to go a little further than the night guys would, the other guys would. So he could, you know, out-hustle them. In a way, he had to sort of show them up in order to sell, because he had to have a better picture. He had to come in the next morning with a better picture than the um, newspaper's own guy would have. It reminds me a little bit of what Lady Lytton remarked about Winston Churchill. She said the first time you meet him, you see all his faults, and then you spend the rest of the time, you know him, appreciating all of his virtues. <laughs> for some, For somebody like Ouija, He's clearly this crumpled fellow. You write in Flash about how he gets those suits with the extra pockets for all those cigars and the film and all the other little equipment that he needs. That's the person that he is. He's almost part of the camera and he doesn't, he wants it to be about him, but what he produces is beautiful and the effort that he makes is certainly really inspiring. And yet he builds that character up and he tries to keep people away and he doesn't just want to go out there and snap the photos. He's just such a complex guy. I picture you while you're doing the research for the book saying, wow, now here's another whole facet of him. How am I going to fit that in? Because the book is not a big, thick book. It reads very quickly. And as I mentioned to you over email, my highest compliment is it defeats any attempt at skimming. You don't want to skip over a couple of paragraphs, much less a chapter, and just move to the next thing because the way that you present Ouija, he's holding on to you, and you don't—you know that this might come up later, so I don't want to miss that part of it. That's generous of you to say, and thank you. I will say that two things maybe prepared me for that. One is that I'm a magazine editor and a magazine writer, and you know I usually write short, and you have to keep it snappy. 
you can't have a lot of wasted prose in a magazine story because people just don't finish it, you know? You can't have a lot of fat there. And then second, I was the first in. There, there is no biography of him. Yeah, so I got to tell the story my way first, which is an asset for sure. There was an author once and she said that you have to put every word on trial for its life and say, justify <laughs> being in this page or yeah. this paragraph or this sentence. You know, I lived in great fear of boring the reader in this book. I'm not going to point fingers, of course, but we've all been there with the biography that is comprehensive and thorough and is a little bit of homework. It just sort of plods along from one thing to the next thing for 700 pages, 900 pages, 1,100 pages. You know, there are 1,200-page biographies that are majestic, and I wouldn't cut a word. Robert Caro's The Power Broker, a masterpiece, wouldn't drop another word. But there are other 1,200-word biographies where <laughs> about 500 words in, you know, the person's still 21 years old, and, and <laughs> yeah. you, wonder, you wonder how long you're going to stick with this thing. Well, one of my sister-in-laws used to cut hair when she was, I guess, in her late 20s. My brothers are older than me, so I was still a teenager, and she would practice on me. And I'd say, gosh, you're taking off a lot of hair back then when that was a concern for me. You're a young man. You're a little bit vain. And she said, it doesn't matter what I take off. It's what I leave on your head that counts. And that's the thing with <laughs> this kind of writing because – a lot of his life is clearly has to be spent sitting in a car alone, listening to that police radio. He's a single man, which is one reason he's able to out hustle those other men who are on salary, who are familiar to the papers. This is his whole life. So there's not a lot going on that's going to distract him. There's not a lot of you could say, well, Ouija brought home a kitten today. And so that's a little fun, fuzzy thing. You have to really focus on not to have a pun, but you have to really focus on that and the exciting parts and edit out the the bad pictures. And that's certainly something you spent a lot of time on. It would have been so tempting as an author to say, well, hey, I spent a month trying to find this one picture and I did. So darn it, it's going in the book. But yet a lot of that self-discipline and, and ability to self-edit that really makes Flash a warm book. It sticks with you. You find yourself looking at pictures and saying, I wonder if this is a Ouija. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing I did have in mind was that he was working mostly for tabloid newspapers. And if nothing else, tabloid newspapers are great at telling a story in as few words as possible with that sort of rat-a-tat, snappy prose. And I did have in my head that although this is obviously a book-length thing, you wouldn't want tabloid prose end-to-end, -end, that it should have a little of the snap and speed of the news business, that it should be a trot rather than a slow walk. Those are all great old news stories. And he does some writing for himself, which comes across over the course of Flash. When you're reading it, he starts to give himself some captions. They start to include them in photos. They start discovering he makes good copies for all these he's dailies. Great copy. Has. And he's a <laughs> funny writer. He's a very funny writer. You know, he's unschooled. He was self-taught. He dropped out of school in the seventh grade. And his, his writing, especially when you see the rough drafts, as I did, is sort of all over the place. But he knows what a news story is, and he knows how to play on somebody's emotions, and he knows how to turn a joke on the page. You know, he took some editing, but when you see his writing in the paper or later on in his autobiography, when you account for that, it's mostly him, and it sounds like him. I've heard recordings of him being interviewed, and Ouija talking is not terribly unlike Ouija writing. Which isn't easy to do either. With the photographs, then he starts to tell a story too and manages to get pack as much in there as he can and frame it just right. And you look at some of his pictures, even if people just Google it, 
that wasn't something that he just stumbled upon. He planned to frame it that way. You could look at a picture, just like a story, a person walking in a room. I always, my example for writing dialogue is you walk in a room, you could say a million things. You don't have to just say hello. In fact, you could say nothing. Anything that you do in that first greeting is a moment that you tell something about the character because you can say it so many different ways. And that's the case with him. What he decides to focus on, that idea of watching the watchers, people that are watching a building burn, he thinks people should be in photographs. The buildings burn are all the same, but it's the people and the lives that are affected that makes for a good picture. That's right. The line he quoted one of his editors saying is, you know, where's the burning building? And he said to him, they all look alike. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not doing it justice. He has the most spectacular New York accent of the old type that my old relatives had. They don't make it anymore. I mean, I have something, but nothing like him. (laughs) It's become the voice of comedy. In fact, the default New York, many of the old Yiddish terms and things like that, everybody comes out of of New York with a little bit of that. And that voice, if an actor wants to do it or a comedian wants to do it for comic effect, that's just the voice of it. That's the language of it that you have. And his voice... Sure, we all reach for Mel Brooks or Woody Allen or (laughs) Sid Caesar or one of those guys. And his voice, in fact, when he later, when he leaves the Daily Grind, jumping ahead, but... Since we mentioned his voice, he tries some other endeavors. He actually gets that pony back again, which is an amazing <laughs> circle. I talked about don't skip any of the pages. There you go. Suddenly a pony shows up at the end if you skip that page. But everything everything comes I back know, in, a, in a circle in his life. He tries that again. And it blew me away that he played a part in creating one of the most iconic film caricatures of all time, and that's Dr. Strangelove. You talk about him being a zealot, right? It's the craziest story. Amazing. <laughs> what happened is this. So in 1963, Weege's career was kind of, I don't want to say on the skids, but it was not where he wanted it to be and not where it had been. He was a little bit of a has-been. He'd done a number of projects in Europe, including some movie work, and none of it was at the top end of anything. It was all kind of, you know, B-movie and C-movie and D-movie stuff. And then he gets a call from an old colleague who is Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick had been in the mid-1940s a sort of teenage phenom photographer himself in the news business. He had a contract when he was 17 years old with Look magazine. And he did an amazing body of work that clearly and vividly owes a debt to Ouija's work. It's quite similar in look and in idiom and the whole sort of vibe of it. And they knew each other from the street, from working the same places. The way Ouija described it is I I knew him around. Hmm. (laughs) And so in 1963, Kubrick is starting work on Dr. Strangelove, filming it at Chipson Studios outside London. And he calls Ouija and says, come over and be my set photographer. I want you to do it the way you used to, with the flash on the camera, that hard light, the way people don't do it anymore. Not natural light. Not the, Everybody else does it the same way. I don't want that. I want what you do. So Ouija goes over there, and he's shooting on the set. And there's this amazing body of work of Kubrick at work and the actors at work and backstage and people setting up lights. And it's a, it's a great document of, you know, this extraordinary movie. So... Peter Sellers, in the course of this filming, watched and listened to Ouija, and he was extremely taken with him. And, you know, Peter Sellers, you may remember this, does three roles in the movie. He plays the president, he plays the lieutenant, Mandrake, and he plays 
Dr. Strangelove himself. And apparently the shoot was structured so that he did each part on as a whole, so he could change characters only once. He wasn't jumping back and forth. The last section of the film to be shot was the one where he plays Dr. Strangelove. And by that time, he had not quite figured out the accent for Dr. Strangelove. And he explained later on that what he did was stare at Ouija and listen to Ouija and take his New York by way of Eastern Europe accent and then lay on a little German accent. The way Peter Sellers explained it, he said, I didn't want to do this sort of usual British guy doing a German accent thing. Hmm. <laughs> and so he took Ouija's voice. There's a clip of this on YouTube where he demonstrates exactly how he does it. And he said, Ouija had, I, I mean, I can't reproduce it. I'm not Peter Sellers. <laughs> but, <laughs> Who is? Um, he said, you know, he, this guy with this high voice like this, he would talk like this in New York, you know. And then he would lay on a German accent on top of that, and suddenly you have Dr. Strangelove. He does it on TV. It's the most amazing thing. Incredible to think that he had a role in that. And that was, I'm just realizing, <laughs> even though I read it and I know Dr. Strangelove, I'm just listening to you say it. And I remembered that was the first DVD that I got for the first laptop I bought. They it was a big deal in in that time, which I guess is you know, before two thousand. And they would give you three DVDs with your computer to get you to buy it, your Toshiba mm -hmm. satellite. And so they offered three, and that was one of the first one of the three. And that was the only DVDs that I owned because DVDs were still new then. And you know that money could mm -hmm. be better spent on beer, so I didn't uh, I didn't run around buying DVDs. But that was the one I chose to get. What got me What got me at the time was that it is also so uh, same for me. It's one of the one of the movies that you know I, I've watched more than any other. That means more to me than any other. And he, to suddenly be researching this guy and then discovering yeah, wow. that he is inadvertently in it. Yeah, I was it's going to say that thing. that just came to you like a flash. To make another pun on the title, you just found that. How did you come across that? Um, I had seen a couple of people sort of floating the idea, and there's an art historian who's written about Kubrick a lot, who had something, but then. Uh, as I was getting toward the end of the book, I discovered this interview with Peter Sellers where he was on the Steve Allen show in 1964, shortly after the movie came out. And it was included in a documentary about Peter Sellers that I was watching. Hmm. And then somebody later on put it on YouTube so I could just see the whole thing by itself. It took some research to figure out exactly where it had come from. It was an interview with Steve Allen, but it wasn't identified, so it took some doing. But I got it there. You had to go through so many sources and just pictures alone and then try to figure out if they were his. I noticed early when I was reading Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous, that you mentioned a couple of books on his bookshelf. And that jumped out at me. I thought, wow, where does he find that detail? Because that's not the typical thing. I don't write down what books are on my bookshelf. And Ouija certainly wasn't writing a dear diary underneath his bed. Then I get to the end notes of Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous, and you discuss blowing up photographs of his cluttered apartment and identifying, in addition to what books he has, that tells us a little bit about him, also some of these uncredited photographs that we never knew were Ouija photographs because it seemed likely to you, as you put it, he wouldn't put someone else's photos on the wall. Right. How many hours would you say you spent just looking at photographs and things like that and microphones? Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you. Well, first off, I will say that the detail about the books on his bookshelf, I must credit a, an unnamed, the piece was unsigned, an unnamed journalist who profiled him before me. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> in 1945, because that journalist went to his apartment and mentioned the books on his bookshelf. So I was able to just transplant that. As for 
identifying a lot of his work. That was the biggest, heaviest lift I had in front of me on this research project. Here's the story. The early part of his career, before he was well-known, he did not keep a lot of his photographs, a lot of his prints. And there was this sort of hole in the story where I couldn't identify what he was up to. But there was a clue, which is that he photographed his apartment in 1937. He's sitting on his bed. You know, he had the camera with a long cable release on a tripod, so he took a self-portrait. And over the bed are about 30 or 40 newspaper pages tacked up, tear sheets. It's his trophy wall for the work he had sold to the papers. And none of it's identified, and you can barely make out some of the headlines. Sometimes it's just a smudge. Sometimes it's a little better. There are a couple of versions of this photograph taken a short time apart, you know, so there are, there are slight variations. A clip will go up on the wall, and then another one will replace it, something like that. But what I did was blow it up as big as I could, and I started going through the New York papers from the year and a half, two years before that photo was taken. He moved into that apartment in 1935. He took that picture in 1937. So I had two years to run through, and there were nine daily newspapers in those years. So I just started turning pages. It's all on microfilm at the New York Public Library. And I cannot count the number of hours I spent in front of a microfilm machine, but it was endless. It was just scroll, 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 scroll. I could do maybe, I don't know, for the smaller papers, which only had 16, 24 pages, I could do a couple of months in a day. But it was at least a year of Saturdays and Sundays at the library, just churning through it all. As I said, I have a day jobs. So I couldn't do this straight through. Yeah. It was a heavy, heavy lift. And the other thing about microfilm is that they have it all, but your eyes are boiled by the end of the day. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask, any nausea or anything from that? Uh, you're, not, not nausea, but, but you know, your back hurts and your behind hurts. And, and there are days you do it and you don't find anything. Yeah. So you think, oh, man. But two things did pan out. One is I, I identified about 80% of the pictures on his wall. Wow. which is a pretty high batting average. Yeah. And two is, in the process, I also saw a lot of pictures in those newspapers that carried his name in tiny print at the bottom. He didn't ordinarily get credited every day, but he did now and then coax a credit out of a willing photo editor. So it'll say in five-point type underneath, photo by Felig, Felig photo, a Felig photo. And so I identified altogether, I don't know, about... I'm going to guess about 50 or 60 pictures of his that nobody knows are his. And in some cases, I was able to then track down actual prints of those photographs that had come from a newspaper morgue, hmm. and I have a box of them. <laughs> do you have any framed around your house, if I can ask? I do. You do? All right. <laughs> I wanted to do a whole wall of them, and my wife very gently <laughs> said to me, do we have to have murderers in the living room? <laughs> so, they look so like they're I sleeping. <laughs> I have a couple by my desk, including one murderer who watches me as I work, and a couple are in the hallway, to, you know, yeah. <laughs> next, next to the pictures of my kid. <laughs> I had a lieutenant colonel, yeah, just sure. an author and a commentator and a Vietnam veteran, and he said mm -hmm. he'd help me with something once, and so I sent him a little figurine. He'd help me with my writing, and I sent him a little soldier from the Revolutionary War that I found in an antique shop, and he said, 
well, my home is a demilitarized zone because of my wife, so I can't can't go too overboard, but <laughs> this is such a nice thing, and thank you for sending it. That it has been given special dispensation to hang around because the, they can take over your whole place, right? Yeah. You're lucky to have one yeah. little corner. No, my wife is very tolerant of this stuff. I should, I has, I, I hasten to add, um, but uh, you know, she she justifiably didn't want to sit there watching TV with a murderer watching her back. Yeah. So. And if you go to Sagamore Hill Theater Roosevelt's house, you see, you know, there's dead animals on every wall in the house, and then yeah. his poor wife Edith manages to have a nice sitting room, and she said there will be no dead animals in there. And then somebody gives Theodore Roosevelt a bearskin rug, and she he comes in there, and she was saying no, no, no. No, no, no. And he finally, she relents on that one thing. I think it's white. It might be even a polar bear. But you just, it's just such a stark contrast. So mm-hmm. that, that's one of the keys, I guess, to a mm-hmm. happy marriage, a little balance and decorating. <laughs> You're enjoying my chat with Christopher Bonanos about his book, Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous. Find our guest at Hey Bonanos on Twitter and at Polaroid Land on Instagram. The New York Times writes, quote, Christopher Bonanos has finally supplied us with the biography Ouija deserves, sympathetic and comprehensive, a scrupulous account with just the right touch of irreverence. Bonanos takes the photographer seriously without letting him and his self-mythologizing off the hook. I want to focus on that word finally in passing because it does seem impossible that nobody wrote about such a vivid character before. We talked about this book being a one of a kind now. Finally, he's getting his due, warts and all. That made me wonder if it was because he gets a little bit of a bum rap because he was also just such a crumpled guy. He doesn't exactly look sexy. This is a great photo on the cover of Flash where he looks almost like a, a little boy playing photographer he doesn't really look like he's really at work or he's doing anything i guess he knew he was being photographed so maybe he is hamming it up a little bit and he certainly knew how to ham it up i wonder if you think that's because of some of those knocks against him things like he played fast and loose with some of the facts that people charged him with staging some of these photographs that you uncover that coney island over a a july 4th weekend in 1940 and you say it was actually two weeks prior or having a car wreck towed. Do you think that explains partially why there was never a biography of this full quality written about this man? I am a little puzzled myself. You know, there are lots of pictures of uh, lots of books of his photographs, and they all have the little essay up front sort of laying out the bullet points of his life. As to why nobody got to him before I did, uh, you know, you got me. It's not like he wasn't a good story. I, somebody tried it about 25 years ago, and I don't know what came of that book. He couldn't get it together or something, couldn't sell it. But why nobody has done it yet, I got lucky in that he was left for me. I will say that there is a whiff of condescension, more so during his lifetime, less now. But there was a whiff of condescension, maybe more than a whiff of condescension, about his photographic skill. He was often described with the word primitive, as in he's a marvelous primitive, which is a really, really sort of jerky way of describing somebody who's very good at what he does, because they suggest that he didn't study. You know, he just sort of knew how to do it. You know, he's a natural talent who didn't work for it. And the fact is, when you look at his early photographs, they are unremarkable. He got good because he shot a lot. <laughs> he worked a lot. So I find it a little irritating that people don't think he studied. He didn't go to school but he studied. 
It reminds me of Ty Cobb in the book Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty by Charles Learson. He says how Ty Cobb hated to be called a natural mm -hmm. because people might have meant it as a compliment, but it also implied that, oh, you just woke up one day and you stepped in it and got lucky. Yeah, it happens to athletes all the time, too, and it's, yeah. it's not cool. <laughs> He's the one who was sleeping there in those shelves and waiting for the news to come on and making all the crazy efforts that he makes here across the course of the book. Anybody could have done that, but he's the one that decided he had the drive and was going to try. So it robs him of a little something. And then also it's a way to make ourselves feel better about it. We say, oh, you hear that's the old joke. You go to a museum, right? Well, I could do that. I could have, mm -hmm. I could have painted that. Yep. That's not that tough to do. I encourage you to try because it's <laughs> not so easy. Yeah. I, I've taken enough pictures in my life to know what I can and can't do, and I can't do what he did. <laughs> yeah, most of them are of your thumb, probably, if you're anything like me. You know, a lot of those early days, you'd back when we had to send film, like your first book about Polaroid, back when you had to send your film away before we had the instant cameras, you'd get them back, you're all excited, and then you find out you have your thumb over the photo. I joke with my mom that all the pictures of me as a child, you never knew I had a head until I was in about the 10th grade because she would just somehow frame the photo always consistently just at my shoulders. So I, I, I guess I could go back now and Photoshop my head on, but that's what happens when you're testing. And for him, he would take them one at a time with a plate. He starts off so early. All that stuff is so heavy, isn't it? It is. You know, he shot a lot of his early work on glass plates. He was in the very earliest days of the flash itself when you had, you know, the big full-size bulb. It's the size of, a, a, you know, the light bulb that you'd have in a table lamp. And they were expensive and difficult. And, you know, gradually he migrated to less expensive ones, what are called press size, you know, the ones that are about an inch long. But even then, you know, it's a big cumbersome thing to carry around. You know, those bulbs work once. Yeah. Those plates, you maybe would go out for an evening with, at the outside, two dozen plates in your bag. So you shot 24 photographs, got to go back. <laughs> You're done. That's not a lot of pictures. If you're covering three or four news stories, you know? Yeah, and that flash powder would catch things on fire and burn his hand. Or That's right. In the very early days, he, he didn't even have a flash yeah. bulb. He used flash powder, which is, you know, you make a little bomb and you set it off to light up the scene. Yeah. It was really primitive and a little dangerous. Yeah, but also exciting. So, hey, that now that we read the book, we can just be excited by it. We don't have to worry about burning Setting ourselves. the curtains on fire, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> We were talking about him being ignored and not being covered and condescended to a little bit. And it made me think of how some of his photos of tenement life invoke Jacob Reese. And they may just seem quaint. You make a point to remind us in Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous, that that was real people's lives. There was nothing cute about them having to live out on a tenement fire escape, for example. That was hard, these realities that he was taking photos of. And like Reese, sometimes he had to help things along and ask people maybe to close their eyes or what have you. But it wasn't as if they were going up to the Astor Ball afterwards. This was really their lot in life, even if you had to ask them to just sit there for an extra flash or something. That's right. He tended to be sympathetic to people who had grown up the way he did. And he tended to be a little jaded about people who'd grown up very comfortably. And you can see it in the pictures. Talk about that high-low that he has, that contrast in, in his work. He'll show both and try to get people to see what's in there. But he's also not a person who's looking to make a statement about poverty in these photos. And 
That's what I thought about people condescending to him. Maybe they would have rather that he just shot that, that he just took the important photo. But he really, even though he had that sympathy and that soft heart for them, and he was aware of it, being somebody in New York, you know that we tend to get very invisible to people. You watch a Law & Order. I was watching one the other day with Jerry Orbach. They're in Central Park under one of those tunnels, and he says, come on, you didn't see a guy there marinating in his own blood when you jogged through? And the woman says, hey, it's Central Park. Somebody's always in there marinating in something. (laughs) That's sort of what, it's easy to be blind to those people. It's easy for him to try to get the men in the top hats at the Met that he thought he could sell. But he'll, he'll spare some film, which is expensive, and money out of his pocket on some of these. And yet he doesn't have this idea he's going to do that, I guess today we call it social justice photojournalism. Do you think that might also be why his approach there that he didn't get that big book talking about how he worked to make major change in the world through his photography? I think that's right. He moved in a circle that was known as the Photo League. This was a sort of club of New York photographers who are all, you know, sharing darkroom resources and trading tips and, you know, both competing and supporting one another, a number of whom are among the great photographers of the 20th century. Bernice Abbott was there and Morris Engel and Ruth Orkin were there and, you know, lots of other people who later became famous or became famous at that time. And they were really devoted to social justice documentary photography. They really wanted to show the conditions. They were almost all socialists. They really, really, you know, they were were very sort of strike-oriented leftists. And they believed that if you weren't pushing those ideas with your work, maybe you weren't to be taken so seriously. You were just making a living, that it was commercial somehow. And Ouija had no patience with that kind of talk, maybe because he just wanted to make a living. (laughs) But also, I think he was doing it in his way. He wasn't doing it in a in an overt way, but the subtext is there in every set of pictures. You can't help it when you take pictures of people in tenements and showing and you advertently or inadvertently show how tough their life is, and you publish it in a newspaper for the outside world. Well, you know you're doing that work. You're just doing it in a different way. You're just letting it stand alone, Mm -hmm. which I guess is what I was getting at in the beginning there, where he's almost becomes an extension of that camera, and he's that shy guy, and he doesn't want to sit and talk and reflect. Maybe it makes him feel like he's a stuffed shirt if he sits and reflects about the great picture he took, which is a funny thing to say, considering he does spend a lot of time puffing himself up, but not about those kind of things. I don't read anywhere in Flash where he's saying, look at this important photo I took. It doesn't seem like a word he he would apply to it. It's... It's almost as if he wants to be looked at as a lunch pail guy, but taken seriously. Let other people say that about me, those kinds of things. He doesn't really want to seem like he's pushing an agenda or that he's puffing himself up and trying to be an important photographer. He feels that everything's important, whether it's for me to pay my rent and not get kicked out of this, what we would consider crappy one-bedroom apartment probably today. (laughs) It was awful. It was not even one bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. Or whether it's just living his life, you know, or whether it's going to be one that's going to make people cry a little bit and feel bad for these kids on the, on the fire escape or those women who are crying outside one of the fires one day because children have died inside. Those are just as important to him. He doesn't think they, they should be dismissed. I like that. He was just going to get the picture. Whatever was going on, he was going to get it, and it was all important. It was all New York to him. That's right. And and to be fair, why did he want that picture of the kids sleeping on the fire escape during a heat wave? He wanted it because he knew the papers needed a hot weather picture for the next morning, and he could sell it. He could go in and get his five bucks. At the same time, he made that picture and not some other picture. He had a story to tell, for sure. 
And they don't have to necessarily be at loggerheads either. He could take a picture that would sell, but that would also say something. And that probably was the ideal. Just like he said, his ideal night was what, a, a murder of fire and a, and a what was the third thing? A car crash. <laughs> yeah, car crash. Yeah, that's what he's looking forward to. <laughs> and speaking of New York and these times, the Depression, World War II, it does change dramatically over the course of Ouija's career. The end of Prohibition, for example, means fewer gangland murders and steadily less romanticism around crime. It starts and that's those guys having shootouts is kind of cool and everybody loves the gangsters and things like a piece of the action in Star Trek, those fun, crazy guys that are out there shooting people. It doesn't even seem real. And he's has those men in the street. That's fine. Then as it gets more violent, then as the war is coming, people don't want to think about death anymore. Then when the war is over, we've opened up our view to a wider world. We now are not have that isolationist view of just New York City. I mean, people still have it today to some extent, but we have heard that there are other places in the world that's not just New York, like that famous New Yorker cover where nothing else is going on. Those dailies start to consolidate or just go out of business. So how does he deal with that? How does he deal with the fact that the world's changing and the city is changing? New York ain't New York anymore, which is the song we use for the theme song. How does he do that and decide that he's going to adapt to those changes throughout time so he can keep selling books? Yeah, well, the short version is he didn't adapt very well. After the war, he published a book of his own work in the summer of 1945 called Naked City. And it made him a bunch of money and it got him a lot of attention. It became a movie and a TV series, although they mostly were buying the title and the sort of overall ethos rather than his particular involvement. And he thought, well, I've made it. And he got out of the news business. He stopped shooting late night news, spot news. He started taking magazine assignments and doing sort of quieter stuff. And some of it, it was work he was very good at. But ultimately, you know, people wanted from him that kind of city life with a touch of mayhem. And instead, he went the other way. He decided to start trying to make money. <laughs> and he moved to Hollywood. He had gotten into a sideline of experimental photography with trick lenses and things to make distorted pictures in all sorts of different ways. And he thought he could market that to Hollywood studios, and indeed he did a little bit. And he also thought he could be a Hollywood sort of party photographer character. But believe it or not, he also thought he could act <laughs> and even direct. He made some motion pictures and he got his SAG card and he started appearing in movies as a character actor. And he wasn't a very good actor. And who the heck starts that? You know, he was at the time he went out there, he was 48, thereabouts. It's a strange career choice to make if you don't look like a movie star. But he thought he'd give it a go. And he went out of California, and he did do some movie work. He's in half a dozen movies for a minute or so. But he really didn't make a success of it. He just he couldn't quite figure out the thread. And he did it for a few years. He did the thing with the trick photography out there for a few years. And eventually he gave up and went back to New York. And when he came back to New York in the early 50s, the change that you're describing had started to happen. You know, the city was getting more global and less local, and his little sort of hand-gathering of news that he'd done all those years was, uh, for lack of a better term, running out of gas. It wasn't happening so much anymore. And he couldn't figure out quite what else to do with himself. He couldn't get back into the papers because they weren't working the same way, and also they, there were fewer papers. And 
as the 50s turned into the 60s, those problems got more pronounced. And that's when he kind of switched to the stuff I was talking about earlier, when he went to Europe to try to get into the movie business there. There was a lot of sort of low-rent movie stuff being made in London and Paris. And then on top of that, he was a novelty over there, <laughs> whereas he was a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say washed up, but the photo editors in New York were thinking of him as this sort of leftover character of the 30s and 40s. So he found a new market in Europe in the late 50s and did a lot of work over there. Just became familiar to New Yorkers like so many hot places, I guess, like Yogi Berra said, it, it's so popular nobody goes there anymore. Yeah, that's right. You know, fashions change in photography as, as in anything. And he suddenly was no longer quite the flavor of the month that he'd been in, say, 1945. And he kept trying to puff himself up. You know, he would, when he was interviewed in that era, he would say, I'm the world's greatest photographer. <laughs> and meanwhile, he could barely pay his rent. Yeah, I want people to read the book for those moments in his life where he's riding around in that Chevy. He's the first photographer to able to carry a police radio. They give him a police radio because you seem to guess in the book or imply that maybe he badgered him into it. He was just so familiar to them and he was always there that he gets the radio somehow. And ultimately he smashes the one that's in his apartment. Take us inside Ouija's legendary Chevy that day. It's almost the New York Borscht Belt version of a Batmobile. You say in the book a very poignant moment from all that waiting and things that I mentioned that you edit out. The first time the radio squawks, you say, and instead of hitting the gas to rocket off to the scene of the crime or the accident, the fire, he decides to hit the brake instead, and he smashes that radio that's back at his apartment and moves on. He does that and makes a break from that career and moves on, lets that body stand, does the writing of books and stuff. He leaves behind a huge body uh, by example, but having written Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous, and mentioning taking photographs, do you think that even though he started out with flash powder and these primitive, as we would look at them today, cameras from 100 years ago, do you think he has anything to teach us, whether we're looking to break into the news business and taking photographs, or whether we're just shooting them on our iPhone endlessly? Do you think there's anything we can learn from the skill that was required and how he honed it over his career in those three decades from the 30s onward? Two great lessons that I can come up with right away. One is, even if you're an amateur, photos that zero in on people's faces, especially if you get in close, have power. He figured this out early on, and he really drills in on the faces in a lot of his pictures, and it makes all the difference. Most photographers who are amateurs make this mistake, which is they stand too far back. you got to get in close. Pictures are better if you get close up, by and large, at least at the snapshot level. That's one. In terms of professionals, if you want to break into the news business, there is an absolutely powerful lesson in his career, which is that hustle will get you very, very far, <laughs> even if you're not that good at the beginning, which he wasn't all that great at the beginning. You'll get somewhere if you try to be there first and get the picture before anybody else. And if you compound that with constant, steady work so that you hone your craft and get better and better, chances are something will eventually break for you. Well, we're almost out of film today. We had a real role here trying to move us up in technology a little bit. I'd like to ask people as a final thought to make their pitch to people who are listening, who hopefully are intrigued by this character, this real piece of New York City, who is Ouija, born Arthur Felig. Tell those people, why should they pick up Flash and get to know 
Gotham's ultimate watcher of watchers? Um, let's see. How can I fill this? I would say <laughs> that anyone who is a creative person, whether you're a photographer or a painter or a writer or a maker of uh, marketing strategies or anything, you have something to learn from his story of always being there and being really, really focused, for lack of a better term, on the work. He was very single-minded early on, and there's something to be taken from that. I would also say that, you know, as a writer, I hope to give you not just the story of a photographer, but of New York City in that era, and gangsters in that era, and newspapers in that era, and those are all things that I find super interesting, and I hope readers will as well. Well, Christopher Bonanos, author of Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous, thank you for joining us today and introducing us to this one-of-a-kind New York success story by way of Ukraine with a stop in Hollywood and Europe along the way. You mentioned the word learn, what we'll learn from his example. And I know when I worked in news that people would sometimes cringe at that word, say viewers don't want to learn anything. They just want to be entertained. Well, gosh, you can learn a lot from Flash, not just from Ouija, but from the way you write from a really enjoyable book, a page turner, as they say, defeats all attempts at skimming, as I mentioned early on. I wish you the best of luck with the book. I really did enjoy it, and I hope that you'll have something out soon that doesn't require you to look through so much microphone. <laughs> thanks so much. It's great being here, and thanks for having me on. Again, the book is Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Christopher Bonanos for joining us and for turning the lens of history on Gotham's celebrated photographer. Remember to follow him at HeyBonanos on Twitter and at PolaroidLand on Instagram. While you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, at our Instagram page, or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.